My name is Susan McGinty. I am the founder and the CEO of AIR Leadership, specialised leadership development partner for security and STEM organisations who are looking to increase the diversity in the leadership in their organisations. Every person brings something different to leadership and everyone's got a different way of leading. And that makes it both complex, but also fascinating. And if you think about the permutations of impact, wow, we can just create so much more exponential positive impact if we're all trajecting in a positive way. This is Welcome to the Founderverse, empowering a new generation of national security practitioners. And now, Meg Tapia. Scientist, best-selling author and leadership expert Susan McGinty is on a mission to transform what it means to be an effective leader. With a PhD in chemistry and two-decade career in defence, national security and STEM, Susan explores the neuroscience behind decision-making styles and shares her vision for the future of leadership in Australia. Speaking from Ngunnawal country in Canberra, Susan draws on her own journey to share the highs and lows of transitioning from a technical expert to a leader. Susan, congratulations on your nomination for the Women in STEM Leadership Leader of the Year Award 2023. And a couple of years ago, you were also voted by the Australian Business Journal as one of Australia's top 20 leadership experts. So I think you're pretty well placed to tell us not only why leadership matters in every industry, but why is it particularly important in STEM? Yeah, thank you, Meg. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have been nominated for the Leader of the Year Award by Women in STEM Leadership, which is an international award and it's an organisation in the US. Leadership, wow, where do I start? It's really critical to any organisation. It sets the, the tone, the scene and the expectations and the culture for how an organisation achieves its purpose and turns its ideas into innovation and sets that out into the world to contribute in the STEM space, to improve climate change, improve people's lives, improve the infrastructure in the world we live in, improve our health and welfare anything that STEM touches. And, and from a security perspective, I'm, I'm really passionate about the importance of leadership in ensuring that we have the right security architecture and the right approaches to leveraging the talent that we need from the Australian population in, in turning that into the security supports and enablers and capabilities that we really need to not only maintain our own national security, but also contribute to that really important global stability. Mm. Gender diversity in national security leadership, how big a problem is this? So, you know, if you had asked me this a couple of years ago, I would have had a slightly different response. It's a challenge, but I've recently looked at some of the stats from sort of 2022 and I'm feeling a bit more hopeful. Uh, so let me step back a little bit and talk about why gender diversity is so important in, in national security leadership, especially if we think about the complex national security challenges that we face within our region, within the globe more extensively. Australia has this really unique diversity in its population that other countries don't have. And it gives us a real leverage point and it gives a real competitive advantage that we absolutely need to leverage. And I don't think to date we have been leveraging it. Back in 29, there were three significant pieces of research published that explored the representation of women in leadership across the national security uh, sector. 
and that indicated that there were some significant structural cultural barriers for women progressing into leadership roles and that that was having an impact on the cultures of organisations. And then, of course, by progression, we know that that will have an impact on the outcomes that we're able to achieve. Back in sort of 2019, in relation to those three pieces of research, female senior executive leadership representation was in, I guess, in that national security sector, it it ranged from 11% to 36%. And this included, you know, big national security organisations like Home Affairs and Defence, and that, some of that research also went into the national intelligence agencies where we wouldn't normally have access to that sort of data. When I looked at some current stats recently from uh, the annual reports of some of the, the bigger uh, national security agencies, I was really pleasantly surprised. Uh, so in defence, for example, 46% of the defence civilian workforce is women. And at the SES level, it's 51.5%. The EO level, it's 39.5%. And at the APS level, it's it's 15.5%. So I think they're really great stats. On paper, the fence is looking really good. Home Affairs uh, has, from a sort of APS workforce, uh, sort of at APS 1 to 6 level of 53% women, they have 52% of their ELs are women and 46% of their SES are women. They're great stats again. ASD has 39% women across their workforce and really, across all levels of APS to EL to SES, you know, it's ranging from 37 to 39%. Those are really great statistics. But when you give those stats, I wonder, notwithstanding that we're getting close to parity, what's the data say about the division between women in operational roles, field roles, business roles, versus women in corporate mm. areas, enterprise capability? Does the data say much about that? So the data that I've been able to access that's really publicly available doesn't go into the level of detail to allow that sort of insight. The other thing the data doesn't show is what the impact of those statistics are having on the culture. And I'm not sure from what I'm sort of seeing and hearing from people that the impact on the culture has yet been realised. And so the important thing for me is that those stats have to translate into inclusive leadership culture then then flows down into, you know, really inclusive and diverse workforces where there's a huge range of perspectives and ideas that are contributed and there's not this kind of group think that, yeah. that we've kind of really observed in national security for a long time. You mentioned earlier that actually it's about those structural and cultural barriers. So if that's the case, how do we shift those structural and cultural barriers? So it's a good question. And I think actually there's a few things we need to understand when we look at how we shift those cultural and structural barriers. So they've formed over many, many decades because these workplaces have been primarily masculine. So we need to understand that. We also need to understand that It's not been built with intention to be exclusive. We also need to understand that culture is really slow to change. Now, to speed up culture, we need to change initially the leadership climate. We can bring as many women as we like into pipeline, but they're not going to either get into those senior roles or have impact in changing the culture if the leadership climate, which is the behaviours, attributes and actions of the senior leadership team, at a point in time, isn't open to being really inclusive and actually taking advantage of the opportunities that not just gender diversity, but all types of diversity offer. 
Now, I think there's something else really important that we need to understand, which is around the neuroscience of the different genders. Women and men have different brains and we have different approaches to decision making. And I think that um, needs to be recognised and accepted and did into our leaders perform so that, you know, asking women to make decisions like men and, and not do things the way they naturally would, brains are wired differently. We have more white matter than men. We're able to, when we're making decisions, we think about connections. We think much more broadly. We think about being collaborative. It's just the way our brain's structured, whereas men's Men have more grey matter in their brain and they're really, their brains, the neuroscience is really structured to focus on the task at hand. The other really important piece of data that is available and I think is really eye-opening, particularly in relation to how do we get more women into leadership roles, is some research that's indicated that women's perceptions of their own identity and their performance in a leadership team, whether that's a committee or a board or, or a team, is negatively impacted by them being in the minority. So when they're in the minority, they feel like their sense of power is lost. And so the research indicates that when women are in 50% of a leadership team or they're the majority, that's when they really have this power sense. They really have much more confidence that they will have the power and the opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way to those leadership teams. So there's really an important piece around the 50% men-women balance in leadership teams. And so as we keep maintaining 50% in some of these organisations that have already achieved that, then we'll start to see some changes. But leadership climate, I think that's where we need to really focus on getting the right leaders with inclusive and diverse approaches and embracing diversity and inclusion so that we're not perpetuating the same sort of stereotypes around, around what a leader looks like and what a leader does and how a leader behaves. That's really interesting. What I'm hearing you say is that gender diversity and striving for equality isn't just a goal because we're 50-50 in our society, but also because it has practical impact in terms of the way that people show up at the leadership table. Yeah, absolutely. And not just a practical impact for how people show up, but a practical impact on organisational outputs. Female leaders bring huge benefits to organisations, things like greater levels of innovation, improved decision-making, better risk management, and also they have this positive impact on organisational culture. And we know that inclusive teams can make better decisions up to 87% of the time, so that's almost double. And we know that teams that follow an inclusive process can make decisions twice as fast with half the number of meetings. And decisions made and executed by diverse teams deliver 60% better results. Wow. So there's real practical implications for outcomes, productivity, innovation. And if you put that onto the lens of national security and what we need to be achieving at tactical capability and global levels, we're just not achieving what we can be if we're not embracing our diversity in a really inclusive way. As women, though, I imagine in the leadership programs that you run, so you run the Women Who Lead Mastermind and you run the Resilient Leader programs, and I imagine you've seen some success stories, but you've also identified some common challenges what are those common challenges that women are coming and talking to you about? Yeah, so one of the key challenges that women come to work with me have 
is the fact that they don't feel that the leadership style that they want to embody aligns with the very masculine leadership style of their organisation. And what is that style that they want to embody? So, you know, it's kind of different for everybody. So I work with them to help them identify a style that's authentic to them. Essentially, it comes down to they want to contribute their expertise in a way that is meaningful and has impact. And they want to be able to do it in a way that they're feeling they are aligned with their values. They're supporting people around them and they are providing the right level of advice to the decision makers. I imagine everybody is wanting to do that as a leader. So where's the mismatch? The mismatch they talk about is leaders that they see around them where there's not those trusted relationships being built. It's more transactional leadership. And I think a lot of the challenge they face is their own sense that they they don't have voice. Now, it might sometimes be related to a specific incident they've had in the past that has made them feel like, I need to keep my voice to myself. I work with them a lot on understanding their own sources of power, their own expertise, how they can contribute that most effectively and do it most effectively so that if they have really, you know, something really important to contribute, they know how to do it in a way they will be heard. And so it's confidence building all along the way. The other piece is really about teaching them how to skills and strategies to build really good relationships within their team and lift up the people in their team by focusing on the team. You know, everyone's everyone's drowning in the amount of work at the moment that is present. And for a lot of them, prioritisation is a challenge. Managing the workflow is a challenge. They come to me and they haven't got the time to invest in people or their own well-being. So we focus on those things as well because people are going to be the enablers to the output. Mm. Can you share some of the success stories that you've witnessed? Oh, yes, so many. So there's one incredible woman that came to work with me a few years ago and she just returned from maternity leave. She was an EL1. She was a tech specialist. She led a tech team. She felt really like she really wasn't sure how she could contribute as a tech expert and as a tech leader because she'd been out of the workforce so much over the previous five years. And, of course, she had the skills. So a lot of it for her was understanding, you know, what her purpose and values were, what she wanted to contribute and how she wanted to go about doing that and really giving, helping her set some goals around understanding herself and understanding what her role was in the workplace. Confidence building, building resilience was really important to her because she was a mother with little kids, not getting lots of sleep, and she was also, you know, a team leader and she also had tech expectations too. We focused on mentors. We focused on her networks. We focused on finding her voice and visibility and, of course, yeah, that resilience. And, you know, we worked together for six months and by the end of that six months she was like a different person, just so full of confidence. She knew exactly what she needed to do with her team to develop them. She was really contributing. She was very happy with the contribution. She was having her voice heard. She was being proactive in how she was leading her team, getting her team more visible to the rest of the organisation. And for her, you know, it was just like onwards and upwards. That was just the foundation of her new approach. It's amazing what happens when you've got good people in your corner. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think part of the reason why you're 
so able to give such good advice to people transitioning and wanting to make a greater contribution that's in line with their own values is because you've transitioned from a technical role to a leadership role yourself. So I want to ask you, what was that transition and that journey like for you? Oh, look, that early transition from being a sort of a tech expert into a tech leader um, was full of mistakes. I didn't really have anyone to guide me and I didn't know that I could ask people. I thought I had to do it myself. And, you know, I made assumptions about the people around me and, and what they needed from me. I made assumptions about what I could and should be contributing. I was learning my leadership skills on the job and I just wish, I look back and like, you know, I did okay, but, and I, I guess, you know, I learned along the way, but I, it would have been great if someone was teaching me how to be a good leader. And that's what really inspired me to want to help other women up-level their leadership quickly and allow them to make the contributions to the organisation and to their security space or their STEM space as quickly as possible. Oh, but actually I should say, Meg, like I loved leadership. No one kind of tells you that you can be a leader and so I didn't really understand the concept of leadership until I moved into, you know, the public service space and, and saw, oh, this is how it works. This is really interesting. So I was always fascinated by it because every person brings something different to leadership and everyone's got a different way of leading. And that makes it both complex but also fascinating. And if you think about the permutations of impact, wow, if everyone's doing things differently, we can just create so much more exponential positive impact if we're all trajecting in a positive way. So it fascinated me. People fascinate me. And, and so I loved learning how to be a leader and I love being a leader. And I just love working with people and helping them to find what makes them tick and motivate them and keep them really engaged so that they're having fun, contributing and being really highly productive. You mentioned there your background as a scientist and your technical background. How has this shaped the way you lead? Because not everybody starts off their career thinking, well, I want to be in leadership mm. and management. And a lot of people start their career very much so in technical roles or in science roles. Is there something about starting your career in that field that has helped you become a better leader in time? I'm not sure if I have a yes or no. You know, as a scientist, I learned how to be really curious learnt to look for knowledge, learnt to look for data to help make decisions or to actually, you know, inform decisions. It was very sort of methodical, logical approach. So I really had to learn about the people side. I had to learn how to change my perspective, how to look for things outside the data and evidence. But the sort of evidence-based, data-driven approach I brought helped me to do some things in leadership better, but I certainly had to completely up-level the other side of leadership, my emotional intelligence, my people skills, and just always asking. I guess one thing that's brought me is that sense of curiosity, you know, which it's driven me to really think, oh, what can we do next? How can we change this? I'm a real change agent. So I think that curiosity and that sense of new knowledge has always driven me to want to find how, by leading others, we can find new ways of doing things and just make things better. And you do that in your best-selling book that you have co-authored, Women Transforming the Landscape of Science and Tech. There are experiences in your own life and the lives of others that you drew on to be able to pull that book together. But I want to talk a bit about your vision and the future. Mm. You talk in your book about the future of female leadership in STEM. How will the role of women in STEM leadership evolve? 
Yeah, so if I could write the future. The sooner we get to gender equity and equal representation from a gender perspective in STEM leadership, the better. You know, those national security stats we talked about, the STEM stats are much, much lower. Similarly, if we think about the complex challenges that we need to solve with STEM, I mean, climate change, cybersecurity, managing AI and just the super fast pace of technology development, we need as many diverse perspectives and voices as possible. And we absolutely need women's voices. And and we're just not there yet because of those cultural and structural barriers that really limit women's participation in STEM. Your own journey with AIA leadership is only just beginning. How do you see yourself growing? What's next for you? The next is just, you know, hunkering down and trying to solidify, you know, my business model, solidify my business development, reach more organisations and women so that I can create better impact. You know, I talked about I'm a change agent. So as soon as I kind of feel like I've accomplished something, I move on. But so I'm really mindful to take a really careful approach to making sure the foundations I build in my business have longevity. Uh, So I'm just really investing in more of the same, but expanding how many organisations I can work with. Before we wrap up, I need to ask you, what is a promising area, an emerging trend or a piece of advice that you're currently paying attention to that you want to share with everyone? Look, I think it really relates to AI and I'm not an AI expert. What I'm paying attention to is the ethics and governance around AI AI is developing much faster than the ethics and governance input can manage it. Of course, like many others, I'm concerned that AI only gives us the perspectives that are currently available. And I'm concerned and watching about how AI development is going to impact gender equity across the globe for those women who aren't fortunate enough to live in the sort of society that you and I live in. It can really impact and reduce women's career and access to opportunities if we're not careful. Susan, thank you for joining me on The Founders. Thanks, Meg. You've been listening to Welcome to the Founderverse, brought to you by Novexus. Innovate. Connect. Thrive.